feel like it's a clap that announces some form of public space. In a way, I feel like it's too bad these mics aren't amplified because it, it adds to the quality of public space to be speaking into a microphone and actually hearing it come back to you. I had the uh, honor this morning, pleasure of speaking to the American Society of Safety Engineers about the lessons I learned from the Woburn case and just had a wonderful time. It like comes down to truth. And I'm talking to engineers so they understand the idea of truth as made of zero and one. It's like a fundamental. It's like it's either true or it's not. And uh, of connecting it with the feeling that we have when we know we're talking truth and being spoken to in a true way. So I, I thought, as I was thinking about what I would say to them, that I would start by filling out the introduction that always comes before one of these speeches where somebody reads your life history. And I'm saying, <clears throat> I'm a teacher. And telling them that the first issue that a teacher faces these days is whether laptops should be open or closed. And as I've been thinking about it, I've been thinking, I, I'd, like to, I'd like to have them closed. I like, I like the space better when it's closed. It's somehow more intimate. It feels more intimate because you don't have these things up in front of each one of you. And we don't have your heads down in. And so I'd like to ask you, if you would, please close your laptops. But then I was thinking, we've put up this question tool, which is a really good idea. It functions by each of you having your laptop open and being connected in such a way that you can put in a question or you can bounce a question that's already there up the chain. And somehow there's a form of a feedback loop that could work in a way that was quite constructive. And then I was thinking, what we're really talking about here is teaching about different spaces, how you create them, how you think about them, what they're good for. And one of the ways in which we've structured this space is with feedback memos. Very simple. And I was thinking about Josh's presentation yesterday and thinking, well, feedback. Wouldn't it be good after you do a project if the email of the person who had projected was available 
and each of you had your laptop open and could give them a feedback memo. What do you think the strong point was? Where do you think it could have used work? What do you want to say directly to me? Now, it wouldn't work, anonymous. It's just not that way when there's a digital track without just a lot of trouble, which I don't really feel like going through. So I was thinking, all right, sometimes spaces with the laptop open, sometimes spaces with the laptop closed. I thought I'd like to start with closed. So who's up first today? Oh, wait a minute, you know, I'm going to amend. Let's start with laptops open. And start by giving Josh feedback from yesterday, those of you that were here. Josh, what's your email address? J-N-E-V-A-S at law dot harvard dot edu. So take a minute. Well, I tell you what we'll do while you're emailing to Josh. We'll do what I suspect goes on in a lot of classes. The guy up front will talk about something, and you'll be emailing about something else. <laughs> so what I told them out there in Boxborough this morning was how I got into the Woburn case at least that was the start of the story, how I went to this, well, I actually started with going to this law school and being smart and getting an offer to come back here and getting tenured pretty quick and then going out and doing a bunch of litigation and falling in love with litigation as an object, as a point of interest, not as necessarily a beautiful thing but a totally fascinating thing. And then of coming back and teaching evidence, basically the rules of how the court works and the structure within which the rules exist. And then got invited to a First Circuit Judicial Conference in Puerto Rico, where I was talking on some evidence subject a guy named Judge Skinner had suggested that I come. And after this conference session, panel session, everybody gathered at the front of the room, I'm accosted by this tall, striking figure that turns out to be Jan Schlichtman, six foot four, dark, strong, Jewish fig fixed features, and he starts 
talking with me, getting my attention, trying to interest me in this case. And I listen, and it's a typical thing after one of these things where people gather around and they've got something that they want you to be interested in. And I finally broke away, went to the airport, and when I got on the plane, who was in the seat next to me? But Schlichtman. And so the whole ride, he's telling me the story. And it was a pretty good story. It's a story about Woburn. Woburn's a town north of Boston. I'd never, never been there, even though I born and grew up around here. And the Aberjona River, which is this little river that runs through it. And how the city of Woburn, basically a working class area, dug two wells into the Aberjona aquifer and pumped water out of it to an area in Woburn where, according to Jen, there was a blight of leukemia. They built these wells from the moment they built them. People in that part that were exposed to the water had been complaining about it. It smelled and it was off color. And they had tested it for bugs and there were no bugs in it. But then 15 years in, they did a spectrometry test and discover basically with a microscope that looks closer a bunch of chemicals that are like zero tolerance on the EPA list trichloroethylene and Jan explains that it's not bad when you drink it that's not the problem the problem is when you take a shower in the morning and it comes out as spray in a hot environment and you're a woman who's pregnant and you breathe it in and it penetrates the placenta and affects the way the kid develops. That's the problem. And he talked to me about this case to a point where I thought, okay, I'll get interested. What he wanted, he wanted He wanted help with the causation issue in the case. But he also wanted Harvard Law School on his side. And there were many lessons that I learned as I went through the case with him. None of which I'm going to tell you now. So I think it's time for your projects. So who's up? Have you sent your email? Good. Who's up first? Excellent. Yes, question. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. I don't know if everybody can see the URL, but this is free for you to post questions. There's a post a question link right here. And when the questions come up, they get in one of these boxes. And if you want to vote for a particular question to be answered, you can vote by clicking on the vote box. 
Um, and the URL is Bowser, B-O-W-S-E-R, dot E-E-C-S, dot Harvard, dot E-D-U, slash tilde, that little tilde symbol, uh, Nesson, slash Q-T underscore final, slash list, dot P-H-P. Sorry about that gigantic URL. Ah, Google Live Question Tool, third link. Oh, November 28th, 2006. So where's the question? I don't see a question coming up. Nobody's put one, I guess. There's that one there, that's that system question. It refreshes automatically every 15 seconds, supposedly. Perhaps it doesn't. Hey, all right. KB makes it through first <laughs> with a question that has a lovely recursive quality to it. <laughs> All questions should be so easily answered. <laughs> All right, it's yours. Thank you. <laughs> is, is that one for me? What is this project about? <laughs> um, <laughs> actually, maybe you can help me with that. That's why I kind of wanted to go early because it would be helpful to get some of your ideas. Uh, I've named my project the Islamic Democracy Project. I grew up as a Muslim, and uh, Islam is important to me, um, but perhaps not in the same way it is to everyone. And my hope is that there will be more voices in the Muslim community to start, I don't know, questioning some old ideas of what Islamic law should be about and how it should uh, act in a society, and also perhaps question some of these specific rulings in Islamic law. I don't know if it would be helpful to just sort of briefly talk about Islamic law. I think traditionally it's meant to come from the textual sources, the Quran and the textual uh, sayings of the Prophet Muhammad. They've sort of been passed down through the ages through a somewhat uh, social scientific process, and they're here for us now, and Typically what happens is that Islamic law is decided by scholars or someone somehow qualified in scholarship. Uh, it's said in, in the tradition that the only proper law is the law given by God, and in some sense people should not be giving laws. Yet I'm kind of tr going a little bit counter to that with the idea that perhaps democracy and Islam can coincide in some sense. What I want to do with my project is create some sort of rhetorical space online so that the lay Muslim can have a voice in how is Islamic law is interpreted and how it should affect the community. And I haven't figured out exactly how to do that yet. Some of the ideas I have are just a standard internet forum. Uh, I haven't actually seen this kind of internet forum out there where you know, Muslims, lay Muslims, are really dealing with... Uh, complicated issues of Islamic law and where they're actually in dialogue with the scholars who I sort of take to be the authority figures in uh, Islamic jurisprudence. Uh, another possibility, and I just recently thought about this this weekend, is perhaps create a community in Second Life or some other virtual world where we can actually experiment with a society where uh, Islamic law would somehow be determined by a democratic process rather than 
handed down by some sort of scholar or some sort of ruler in power. Can I open it up to questions? I'm sure I wasn't absolutely clear. You already have a few. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Which one of these should I go for uh, first? Okay, let's see. What do I think about the election of Keith Ellison in Minnesota, the first Muslim in Congress? Uh, is that? I, I suppose I could I could answer that. I, I think. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if it has much to do with my project, but I'm <laughs> related, related. Okay, I'll 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 try to relate it. Um, Keith Ellison is, I believe, a convert to Islam, and he, he came into it by choice. Uh, and yet, at the same time, he obviously believes in the democratic process of the United States. He, he must have some feelings that his Islam is relatable to a democratic process. I don't think he's directly, I don't think by any means he's thought of making the United States an Islamic democracy or anything like that, but I, I'm sure he has some feelings that there are shared values there. But may we follow up? Sure. Would he, you think, respond to an invitation to join you in Second Life in some democratically structured discussion such as you're imagining? That's a possibility. I've never actually spoken to the man, but uh, it may be possible. He's a congressman now. He may be too important to talk to me. But uh, we could try that. We could try that. I, I don't know how. I don't know about his expertise in Islamic law or how very central it is to his thinking. But it's worth worth checking out. No, I want you to stop. Actually. Okay. You have the power of invitation. Yes. What kind of invitation do you mean? an invitation to join you in some discussion that has a shape that you can describe. You might even be able to provide a link. Right. And it sounds like you and he share a genuine common interest. Right. In that you both somehow see connection between Islamic law and some concept of democracy. Okay. So I could imagine that he might find it very interesting to explore that subject with you and with others that you might be able to put together. Absolutely. Well, Congressman Ellison, if you're watching now, I definitely, <laughs> I definitely invite you to uh, join me in my project so that we can uh, open up a space to talk about Islam, which I know is important to you, and also to connect it to the shared values of democracy. Uh, and uh, I think it'll be beneficial to both Muslims and to non-Muslims alike. All right, so let's see, number 12. Where exactly does your empathic argument come in? Uh, who, what are you arguing against? That's a good question. I think uh, one, of the pe- one of the groups I'm arguing against is the authority. In, in this case, the authority, I believe, are the scholars, certain scholars uh, who believe that the only people who are capable of interpreting Islam or deciding what is right for a society is through some sort of legalistic process. Um, 
and usually part of one of the four schools in Islam uh, that have sort of survived through the ages. Uh, there have been dozens and dozens of schools of jurisprudence in Islam, but only four are really considered uh, orthodox today. So I think I would be arguing against them. Uh, and there are a few, recent, few arguments they'd have against me. They'd be saying, first, lay Muslims really don't have what it takes to determine what's right in their religion. Uh, there are certain rules of logic, certain... Uh, there's certain knowledge about history that a person must have to really understand what the text means. And if we're going to have a, a law based on the religion, they're going to say that it should be based on the texts. And they'll probably say that it should be very strictly related to the texts. And it, there's sort of that idea in, in our society, too. Uh, who is it that interprets the texts in our society? It's trained lawyers, right? Uh, our, the texts in our society are the Constitution and statutes, etc. It's assumed that a trained lawyer, a particularly qualified lawyer who makes it to the judiciary, is going to be the one to uh, ultimately d decide what, what the answer is going to be. My response to that is that Islam is more than just law. Uh, Islam, and when it comes to guiding people, uh, the idea that it should be guided solely by a legalistic process is not something I agree with. I would rather have you know, people see the spiritual aspects of it, and that's something a lay Muslim can bring to the table. And I, and I also want to say that I don't think the scholars should be totally edged out by any means. I think they should be a central part of this project. I invite the scholars out there to become a part of this project, um, where they could come into Second Life or onto an internet forum, and they can bring forth their views. And this is a great opportunity for them, for you, the scholars out there, to give us your ideas, show us your thinking, and engage us. And we can ask you questions, you can ask us questions, and I think on the whole, the whole community will be better off. Is there a question you'd like to pick out of there, Rebecca? Uh, well, I just wanted to follow on that. I feel like the, you, the empathy in what you were saying picked up in the very last statement where you started talking to the scholars about what they can get out of an interaction with lay people. And so I was wondering if you wanted to follow that thought a little bit further. Right. Well, I, I think many scholars today are kind of worried about the modern world and where it's headed. Uh, particularly in the Western world where Islamic law doesn't govern societies by any means. Um, it's governed more by personal choice. For example, in this country, most Muslims decide whether to follow the rules of Islamic law as given by the scholars by personal choice. This is a chance for the scholars to engage us and persuade us uh, as to their thinking. Different scholars certainly have different views. Um, here's a chance for them to talk to us and feel more connected to the religion. If the religion is going to sort of have a continuing influence in modern life, I think the scholars need to start engaging us in a modern sense. I don't think that's, I think you've done a great job. I, I'd say, let's say thanks, okay? Thank you. Thank you.
Tell us your email address. T-A-L-I, T-A-L-I, at law.harvard.edu. Yeah, T-A-L-I, T-A-L-I, at law.harvard.edu. Uh, I like how people are using the question tool to give some questions and some answers. That's kind of an adaptation and seems like a good one. Um, I don't know how to sort of section this off and move on to the next presentation. This is kind of a beta version of this tool, but... Well, I'd love to just, I'd love to just have a look at this for a moment. So, just so we're self-aware of playing with the space, anybody want to comment on not the substance of what just happened, but the form? The idea of laptops open, question tool, speaker? Yeah? I think it's an interesting thing. I think, though, that um, having the presentation and using it for the first time, some people might get excited and just get really distracted with asking a bunch of questions and not paying as much attention and like looking at other people's questions and trying to answer them. And so maybe as people got more used to it, they wouldn't be so enamored by the fact that it's brand new and then it could, I don't know, work with a little less distraction. All right, so sentiment in the group. Should we try it again or should we desist? A few more. A few more. Okay. Uh, I guess I would be a vote for trying it again. I thought what was nice was the ability to add on to people's questions so you can get people kind of combining to get, you know, you have a lot of people who are thinking the same things. So you can kind of modify each other's questions, kind of like the wiki in class, and I think that's a nice thing. It lets show what people are really thinking about. Uh -huh. I think that the biggest thing is at least people are paying attention, even if they're... Even if they're, you're right, uh, looking at the questions and reading over people's questions and writing their own, at least they're still paying attention, which is obvious. I mean, it's better than having the laptops open and people looking at something else or having the laptops closed and them just zoning out while someone's presenting. So I think in that way it's more interactive and it's interactive in a good way. Uh, have we got a mic? Go ahead. Um, I think it kind it's of... Okay acts better, like, maybe it should be called the discussion tool, because I, I think this is providing a really, really important space, because everyone's always wanting to talk to each other, but we've never had the chance to before, and now we can really discuss what's going on here. I think that's cool. Well, Becky, you want to say a word about the actual program? Um, I don't know that much about it. I did not make it's a, it myself. It's but. an open source program. That's the key. And we're in touch with people that can play with user interface in ways that are constructive and make it a more useful tool for fluidly doing what I think we are, in fact, experiencing, which is a kind of connected thinking process that gets reified externally to the rhetorical space that we're immediately in. And for me, it clearly has potential. So... One thing I didn't get, though, was feedback. And, and 
in this situation where I was reading questions and that was great. I was answering questions, but I didn't get any help from you guys. I, I'm sure if I go back and uh, read read the questions and some of the answers there, it'll be helpful. But it wasn't as interactive as I would have actually preferred it to be. I, I felt like people are asking me questions and I was also asking questions and they weren't really getting answered except from you when you offered some insight. Although this one that we didn't go to with the 14 votes is a whole string of feedbacks. That's true. One of the things that I wonder about this is that it, um, people write very short questions. They're not all that eloquent, and sometimes there are ideas that it's not clear they get communicated through these little short pieces of text. On the other hand, the nervousness and the tendency to run on when you get the microphone in your hand is gone in this environment. And I'm not sure how the trade-off plays out. It's the same thing in Second Life. I've been watching it all semester. I think what's interesting about it is that it could allow people who aren't in the room to be asking questions also, like the at-large community and things like that. And, you know, unfortunately, that maybe that's not happening right now. But yeah, if if the video was live, I'm just saying like it could be used in that forum for adding even more to the conversation. And maybe if you know, like you said, you weren't getting feedback. If instead, you know, you kind of asked, even though it says question tool, if people did provide feedback, then it could be helpful in that way too. Well, I'm not at all against providing feedback live. And I agree with you. This, I, I, I sense the distraction in just the sense you described. So how about just we take a moment and if you're, you've emailed, and that's one way of feeding back, but oral feedback is something else again. It has a present feel to it. Like, I felt I should have said to Josh, Josh, I think you did a very good job yesterday. I thought that you placed the issue in front of people of how to relate to your neighbors from your hometown was very well put. I felt like everyone got it. You haven't got a mic, so it's no good. (laughs) (laughs) On what you might do better, you could be a little tighter. You could get on and off a little quicker. But it was really good. I liked it. So how about feedback here from you, Becca? I like the idea a lot. I think that there's, um, uh, there are a lot of people who are interested in this topic and um, I mean, people inside the community, outside the community in the U.S. and other countries. Um, and I think that a way that you could make it get some energy behind it would be to focus it on a particular issue or a scenario or an event or something that would just get the thing kicked off because it's a very broad idea and uh, it seems like if you just put an Internet forum out there, who knows what you get? It'd be nice to use your skills at putting, stating a problem or a question to help focus it. 
Um, I think that this project is a lot like mine in, in that it has similar, similar uh, broad idea that might be hard to translate into creating an expression in a cyber medium. Um, and insofar as that, I think that maybe Rebecca's right, it does need to be narrowed down a little bit into more concrete issue, but I think if you do that, you also risk losing the overarching goal that you don't want to lose sight of. I mean, your argument isn't just for this application in specific instances or this idea or notion, and it's, it's for a greater idea and greater cause. So I think that's true. It's easier if we could narrow it down, but it also, you don't want to lose what your overall purpose is in it. And I, I see the same problem in my project as well. And the same issue of how do you express such a broad notion in something that isn't specific and isn't an issue, uh, for instance, something that people vote on. I mean, you know, So, John, you have to tell us what your project is. So um, my project is on modern libertarianism, and it's an argument for much of what we've seen throughout this class uh, for free choice, basically. Um, we, other people's projects touch on this issue. Um, there's one on steroid use. There's one on uh, suicide, on uh, doctor-assisted suicide. Um, these are smaller issues of a greater argument, the way I see it. I see that there are these competing forces, too, which are completely understandable. For instance, in the suicide context, we want... We want to make sure people value their lives. We want to make sure that people uh, don't do things later on that they'll regret. And in some instances, we want to restrict choice. Uh, we see this as well in the drug debate, um, whether we continue our war on drugs, things like that. My, my argument is that we should open these up to individual choice, that in the end it's about the choice of users. Um, it's about the personal liberty that people have. But in a lot of ways, this reflects the same concern that you have, which is that this is a really broad issue, and it can be taken from a number of different ways. And I see that same problem, but I think that if you focus too narrowly on an issue, you lose sight of that broad objective, which is a beautiful theory in, that we can see stretched across this class in multiple ways. Did I hear you right, John? You're for legalizing drugs. <laughs> I am for opening it up to personal choice that we should <laughs> this is exactly sort of the debate right it's because people hear things about personal choice and they think well this is sort of the empathic argument right that people hear this and they think well that's crazy how could we legalize drugs or how could we allow people to kill themselves when they're on their last dying days, or how can we uh, allow athletes to take steroids or things like this? And in the end, it is about that personal choice and personal liberty. And there's competing arguments as well. I mean, there, there are plenty of reasons that the other side has for feeling the way they do, and those are completely understandable. In the drug instance, it's that others' actions can have effects on uh, certain externalities, for instance. I mean, you can you can really, uh, you know, you can do stupid things when you're on drugs. They'll have effects on children. They'll do things like that. Um, and also in the steroid context, you're afraid of the 
externalities that they'll have on children growing up and playing sports. And I think that's, that's where the real debate is, is in those externalities that personal choice and personal liberty can have. So I have several reactions which I'll just throw out. The idea of, of truth and how you determine it. I spoke this morning. I introduced the subject by saying I'm the law lord. I sit at the table of the gods with the law of engineering, the law of science, the warlord, lord of the press. And started them off thinking about law from that point of view. But with the Necker cube in back of me, and with an introduction to the Wubern case that said front up, this is about money. And Jerry Fasher taught me the lesson that the truth is at the bottom of a bottomless pit. It's a rhetorical space in which story wins over substance. And it denies at its core that truth is just one thing. It's like the essence of law. The truth has two sides, can be seen from two points of view. And the law of Lord of Religion seems to say otherwise. And I hear in you some core question of asking can Islam and democracy connect? in a way that calls into question whether there's just one truth. And I do see that connect with the individual liberty. But I think there's still plenty of work to do on yours. Right. Okay, so who's up next? Come. Can I change this? Or does it need to Yeah, now how do we change it? We, 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 I do. That'd be easier. Yeah. And how can we start from scratch with a new project? Is there any way to do that? Wow, look at that. Do you want to be up on the screen? Um, I don't need it immediately. I can wait.
I just said that we're switching instances in the question tool. It's actually not terribly relevant for the video, but we're now at November 28, 2006, two as the instance name. Hey guys, um, my name is Jason Mehta. I'm a 3L here, and I'm pretty excited about talking about my project, so thanks for listening. Um, I guess the best way to introduce it is probably just tell you a little bit about myself, and then I'll tell you about what I want to do. Um, so when I was growing up, I was actually really, really shy, and I was never able to really make friends. I just was too timid and too scared. And my parents tried everything possible to like, try to help me and try to get me to be more outgoing. Uh, my, first, my personal favorite suggestion, one day my mom came home with about 20 packs of bubblelicious bubblegum, and she told me that if I handed them out to people at school, they'd be my friend. And it was really great. It was wonderful, except that as soon as I gave away all the gum, like, I could never muster up the courage to talk to these people. <laughs> so it didn't quite work. But I did give away the gum very successfully. Um, so this went on for most of my childhood. And I guess just somewhat serendipitously, my first day that I was in high school, my freshman year, I accidentally got signed up for a speech and debate class in high school. And I was mortified and terrified. I tried to find every excuse possible to get out of this class. I tried to find like doctor's excuses about why I couldn't be able to speak, everything you could think of. Nothing worked. So um, just out of serendipity, I actually stuck with the class. And I had a speech and debate teacher that worked with me throughout the entire year, trying to help me find the courage to speak, find my own voice. And it might sound a little bit cliche-ish, but by the end of the semester, I was actually giving presentations to my classmates. I was talking with my classmates. I really felt empowered in a way to find my own voice and to speak and be who I am. And it was an amazingly transformative experience for me. I loved it. Um, so I actually stuck with high school speech and debate for four years. My senior year in high school, I won the state championship in public speaking. It was a great experience. I loved it. So I went to college, and I wanted to give back to a community that had really helped me find my voice. And so the way that I was able to do it is I started this website. Um, this is about seven, eight years ago, forensicsonline.net. Um, and it right now is the, um, I think it's the most visited internet high school speech and debate website. About 1.5 million visitors, or hits a month, um, 4,500 registered users. So it's just been great. I've really enjoyed working on it. It's really been enjoyable. Um, but you know, just because of law school, because of different things, I haven't devoted as much time to it as I would have liked. So when Professor Nesson suggested that we find a topic that we really feel passionately about and that we really care about, I thought that certainly this is a topic I care about. And so what my goal is and what I'm trying to hope to do is to convince policymakers and teachers to require that all students take a speech class, a debate class, a communications class, one semester of this, as a prerequisite to graduating, just like students have to take a math class or a science class. And so in an effort to do this, I, um, what my project is, hopefully, is I've registered this domain name, speech-education.com, and I've started this website. Um, I have a little video, too. I should warn you, I'm not Steven Spielberg, and I'm not even like a budding Steven Spielberg. But I'll show you the video quickly, and then I'll show you the website. Is the sound going to work on this screen now? Sorry, I should Thank you. 
So this is the um, website, and um, that was good. Thanks. That was good. Thanks. Thanks. I um, I conscripted my parents and my family to be members of this, and so um, that's why you see the background is pretty similar. Um, so what the hope is on this website is to basically try to encourage people to care about this issue, and then also if they do care about it, to do something about it. And so I guess this is where I'm trying to get the empathy involved in the empathetic argument with this issue of why does all of this matter, the first link here. And what I was trying to do is think of why is it that policymakers and teachers for so long have kind of resisted this idea? Why is it that they say speech education doesn't matter as much as a science class or a math class? And I guess I thought mainly there's three reasons. And I started thinking about them. I think they all really deserve a lot of attention. They deserve a lot of merit. Um, you know, I think number one, standardized test is the norm in America. People teach to the SAT, and that's how we reliably measure student performance. I think that makes sense. Number two is I think that speech skills can be acquired outside of the classroom. A five-year-old who doesn't go to class will learn how to speak with his friends. He's probably not going to learn how to do trigonometry by himself. And lastly, speech instruction classes are kind of less important than other classes. Like, employers probably care more that you know how to read and write than they do that you can do a dramatic performance on stage. And I thought about it, and I think these all make a lot of sense. I think it makes sense, and I think that's why, for so many years, we've not required speech communications in the classroom. But I thought about it a little bit further, and I think that if we devote just a little bit of time to speech communications in the classroom, we can actually further all of these goals. We can increase student performance on the SAT and on other standardized tests. I think we can teach more advanced skills. We don't need to teach basic skills that students will learn outside of the classroom. And I think we can teach students how to communicate the fact that they know how to do math and science. They can communicate that they know these skills. So, for example, if we teach students how to communicate their questions in a geometry class, for example, they can ask their teacher, I don't understand the Pythagorean theorem, rather than saying, I don't get it. Um, and if we teach students, if we recognize that students can acquire these skills outside of the wait, class... Wait, 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 wait. Yeah, sure. That was a big advance? I'm sorry? It was a big advance so that they ask about the Pythagorean theorem rather Absolutely. than Absolutely. Saying... I mean, I think it makes a real big difference if we can teach students how to communicate with one another and to communicate with their teachers rather than just saying, I don't get it, I'm frustrated. We teach them to say, here's what I don't get. Here's what I don't understand. And therefore, students are actually going to do better on the SAT. They'll do better on these reliable tests. And I think that if we say speech skills can be acquired outside of the classroom and really believe it, which I think is right, then we can teach students more advanced stuff. We can teach them about how to give a PowerPoint presentation or here's how to debate and engage someone. Oh, my God. <laughs> We're going to teach them how to do PowerPoints? Absolutely. The oh, sky's this, the limit. This is going to be terrible, isn't it? No, but I think we can reach Can you all imagine the... walking through the world full of kids who are doing PowerPoint slides <laughs> at you? But I think we'll really teach students how to engage one another, how to really listen and comprehend what the other person is saying, and then how to respond to that effectively. And I think that will even promote the idea of what we're trying to teach them in science classes and math classes. We'll teach them how to digest material, how to really understand it. And that way they can convince their employers, their future prospective employers, that they know how to do this stuff. So if employers really do care about math skills, in an interview students can present that they actually know how to do it. So I think we further all of the goals that policymakers care about by devoting just a little bit of time in the class to speech communications. So how about we see what questions everybody in here has for you? Absolutely. So much. All right. Um, why should this class be mandatory instead of merely optional? Apparently it makes a big difference whether this is on the big screen, whether people are paying attention and voting on it. 
Um, so why do I think that this class should be mandatory? I think that um, math classes, science classes are all really important. And I think that, you know, I understand that there's such a limited amount of time in the classroom to actually really promote certain skills. But I think that one of the most important skills and one of the most intrinsic skills to success in life is the ability to communicate and the ability to speak. So, for example, if we teach students math skills so they can get good jobs, then the only way that they'll be able to convince employers of that is if they can communicate that. And that's why I think that it's important that these classes should be mandatory rather than optional, just because I think it really empowers students. It's transformative in a sense. Um, are you advocating instituting this at a particular point in education? How would you feel about including it in college curriculum instead? Um, I'm not torn. I'm not convinced that it needs to be. I'm not set in my ways that it needs to be in high school. I just think high school is a good opportunity just because it's a time when students are really beginning to develop themselves and they're really beginning to find out who they are. I think it really gives them a chance to explore these skills and use them when they start going to college, when they start looking for jobs. But I think at any point it would be great to do this. Uh, I guess the counter argument is that this is something you can learn outside of school. Absolutely, I do think this is something you can learn outside of school. And I understand that. And that's why I think, you know, at times I get why policymakers are reticent to say, let's devote a whole semester to speech communications. But I think it's much more than just you learn how to speak, you learn how to read a book. I think we can teach them really advanced stuff. We can teach them how to communicate with one another, how to listen to what somebody's saying and respond to their questions effectively. It sounds like this is something you weren't effectively learning outside of school yourself. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I, and I feel like it's the type of thing that I wouldn't even realize that I didn't learn unless I had a class that had taught me that. Pass this back to Art. I was too verbose, and the character <laughs> limit kicked in. Um, so I'll, I'll try to be succinct, but I'm also going to blame it on the live journal, uh, live question tool as being uh, inadequate. So what do you say to a teacher who says, this is great, I think it's really important for kids to be learning how to speak, but they already cut gym, and they already cut art, and they already cut music, and they already cut all of these things that are also really, really important to have other, these other you know, components and they're telling us we have to spend more time at school and they're lengthening the school year and they're cutting into lunch and we still need to focus on these very, very basic things. What are we supposed to move in order to teach this? And by the way, they're still not paying us anymore to be doing this. I can't solve the last problem about the pain. But um, I think that's a great point. I, I understand it, right? I mean, there's so much material that we want to teach students. There's so little time. And I understand that there's a real tension there. I think that there's ways that we can actually integrate communications into pre-existing subjects. So for example, rather than a professor just going up there and teaching trigonometry skills, maybe that they can think innovatively and think, here's a way I can get my students to present this material to each other. That way they're not only learning the trigonometry skills themselves, but then they're also learning how to communicate with one another. So I don't think we have to necessarily you know, give the you know, cut back on math classes or science classes. I think we can kind of integrate them in a sense. I mean, just following on that, though, if you're having the students try and demonstrate trigonometry concepts to each other, I mean, they're, they're you know, high school students. They don't know trigonometry. I mean, you are going to lose something if a lot of the time that the teacher who does know something, you know, would be spending explaining it to them, they're going to be working on these kinds of presses. I mean, you're still, there's still a trade-off. Absolutely. I feel like I'm picking on trigonometry, so I guess that applies to everything. But I feel like... 
for example, when we were talking earlier in the class about the Wikipedia and how students should use Wikipedia and what teachers can do out of it, we said that perhaps what we should do is assign students to go look at a Wikipedia article, then go compare it with you know, encyclopedias, and then report back. So do some outside research and then come. And I think the same thing can be done here. We can say that you know, most of the education will be done with the, with the teachers teaching students like we traditionally do. And then you know, occasionally we can do assignments that integrate communication. So for example, five minutes out of every day we'll have one student presentation. Or maybe uh, you know, as a final exam at the end of the semester, just one presentation. It doesn't take away too much time from the classroom, but it still teaches those intrinsic skills that I feel are so important. So there's a couple questions with a bunch of votes that look good. Maybe we can do those too and then move to the next presentation. Great. Aren't a lot of these skills the things we're trying to teach in English classes anyways? Would it make sense to integrate? That's kind of what we already okay. did, but this one over here looks, with the five votes, Great. looks pretty interesting. Fortune speaks to get a positive transfer. What about the students who won place in this one? <laughs> I like the chicken box analogy. Um, so the question basically is around the idea of what happens if students develop some negative reactions to those negative emotional effects because of the fear to speak? And, you know, I think there's a real point to that. I think that, you know, Americans consistently say that their number one fear is the fear of speaking. And so there's really a concern there. Um, but I think that there's ways that if we can try to really sell teachers and policymakers into this idea, we can help them with in terms of curriculums that try to help them help students ease their way into speaking. So, for example, I think that we don't have to say we're just going to let you know, teachers run amok and students, whatever happens, happens. But I think that there's ways we can gradually introduce students into this, gradually find ways for them to get involved. So, for example, they might not need to speak in front of their entire class. Maybe they speak with their neighbor. They try to explain one theorem to their neighbor or one scientific idea to their neighbor. So I think there's ways that we can gradually, incrementally help students learn this communication skills. All right, Josh, thank you very much. Perhaps as a transition, I'll tell you my own speech phobia. You need a tape break. So are you ready? So here, a snap. <laughs> so I once taught a class here at Harvard Law School with an, a professional actor named Ken Howard, who was the white shadow back in earlier days of television. It was a, a speech class. It's just what it was. And he asked each one of us at the outset, I have to say this was one of these things where I was taking a class from someone who I could learn from, his first question at the outside of, outside of the class was, do you have some speech fear? And if so, what is it? And mine was singing a song in public. And so he made our goal for the class to overcome our fear by the last day. And the way the class concluded was exactly this, that is, people standing up in front of the class and doing the thing they feared. And I undertook to sing <laughs> Earth Angel. 
And I started bravely and sang through the first verse and then was proceeding through the second. And as I sang, my voice got quieter and quieter until I had stopped singing. And this was utterly involuntary on my part. And I got away with it. Nobody knew that that wasn't like part of the act. All right, who's next? So who's next? This Fred Friendly seminar thing that's coming up tonight It was the environment in which I discovered that a key to being comfortable in a rhetorical space is a willingness to accept silence, to ask a question and then just let it hang. And the longer it hangs, the better it gets. So who's next? Let's close our laptops. Yeah, we kind of did yours. Must pick up the microphone. Oh, right. Um, nothing close to what has already been done, like the projects that are seem fairly complete. I was more looking for ideas. 
Um, my project is nothing nearly as deep as Islam either, <laughs> or public speaking. I was discussing, um, I made a podcast so far on pedestrians crossing and crosswalks and the fact that the drivers don't usually stop. And I can relate to this both as a driver because when I do stop for pedestrians, they seem to take forever and they come one at a time across the street. And you are trying to get somewhere if you're driving. Um, and on the other hand, the pedestrians, when it's cold, they do have the right of way and should be able to cross. So I was kind of, and yes, it is the law, um, although nobody knows, seems to know um, at intersections what the rules are. So obviously the fact that it is a law and that there are rules already is not a sufficient justification for having people um, act properly. So I guess I'm kind of looking for a hook for my project and also a forum. So. Okay. <laughs> um, I don't know if this is necessarily sort of a hook or a forum, but something that just sort of got me thinking about that was that at least for me, it seems to vary a lot regionally. And I really think that the people in Cambridge are really, really nice about stopping whenever people are in the crosswalks compared to everywhere that I've ever lived before. <laughs> so maybe I have a very different experience than you do, but I don't know if that's necessarily a hook or how that would work into a medium, but I can almost sort of see some sort of thing that would sort of allow people to sort of like click on something and like say, I live here and the people are really bad <laughs> or sort of bad, and now I live here and the people are less bad. I, I, don't, I don't know if that's... Well, I'd love to have some sort of interactive thing because I grew up in a, a suburb in Connecticut and we have like two crosswalks in our whole um, town. So it was never really an issue. Um, but around here, there are crosswalks all over the place and I'm not sure where you grew up but or where uh, in, you were. In the city of Chicago, people just run you over. Well, I was thinking <laughs> that my hook might be having like a website with a video where people like pedestrian gets run over or something and starting from there actually um, I don't know pass back to Art um, I don't know about having a video where someone gets run over but something that could be interesting is to drive around and like, almost as an experiment and have a friend sit in the passenger seat and kind of video out your windshield and then see what happens, do the, you know, from the driver's side, because I think a lot of times pedestrians think, you know, these big bad cars bearing down on them, but you did mention the other side of it, and, you know, seeing which pedestrians sort of, you know, faint out into the middle of the crosswalk, or, or stand there for a while, or, or kind of mosey very slowly <laughs> through, especially like in Harvard Square, so it might be interesting to sort of videotape that happening, and, you know, that might be a hook into it without necessarily all the splatter. Well, I, I do think that one of the problems is that it's oh, there's somebody right behind you. Is that it's very egocentrical. So if you're a driver, then you see the driver's perspective, and if you're a walker, you see the or pedestrian, you see their perspective. And so I think trying to get them to meet in the middle would definitely be what I'm trying to do. Um, I agree with your project. I think it's highly necessary, and especially there's a crosswalk up like when you're on your way up to Boca Grande. <laughs> the, you're crossing the Mass Ave, which is pretty big, and there's a sign there. Actually, once I almost got, I've almost got run over a, a number of times, but once I actually looked <laughs> to make sure that there was actually a sign and I wasn't crazy, and there is. And so I've always wanted, I'm not really normally confrontational, but I've always wanted some way to like make them stop so that I could just say, did, you know, did you see the sign, you know? Because um, I can look both ways and not get run over, that's fine, but it just irritates me that they just totally ignore the sign when I'm standing there. Um, and so I was... I, I've actually thought about this. Um, so, 
perhaps if you can get two video cameras, one like filming the people doing breaking the law, and then another one at the next red light, and you can call the person with the second camera and say, the person in the red Nissan whatever just ran through, and then you could splice them together and see their reactions and see how they respond if you knock on their window and say, did you know that you just broke the law back there? You know, just because it would be entertaining. You know? Put, it Put on a CCTV. cop uniform or something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there is a way. I, there is a way. Um, if you want to stop them, what you do is you walk out into the crosswalk looking the other way. They stop. <laughs> and if you see somebody doing that, because there are people who do that, and you want to move them, what you do is as you see them looking away, arrogantly walking out into the crosswalk, so you've got to stop so that they can, you know, leisurely walk across, you come up pretty close to them and you jam the brakes on so it screeches and they hear this and most of the time they go I think this is a subject that there's a lot of tension on I mean I'd like to have some sort of forum where people could vent or interact but I'm not sure how to get people to that forum to actually contribute whether it's in video form or written form um, what I was recently at an uh, an event, it was sort of a political art salon um, in Cambridge, and somebody, a friend of mine, Clay Ward, showed a video that he'd made in New York City um, in which he and his friends had uh, dressed up as big cement barriers, you know, those barriers they used to barrier off a lane in the road, um, because Giuliani had put them around City Hall so that you couldn't get to City Hall anymore because of the barriers, and he just videoed them walking in these costumes. And it had this nice effect of making the argument about the ridiculousness of the barriers as they would block the way, but also being funny so that people don't get all angry and screeching brakes. And I think it would be cool if you did some video thing to find a way to make it not aggressive to people so that they don't feel threatened as they're, I, you know, learning about this. <laughs> I think it would also be cool if you made some stickers or something for like those like uh, poles right next to the crosswalks that say something like "stuck at this crosswalk." Come to this website and talk about how you're frustrated <laughs> with it. And like, I, I figure you'll get actually a decent amount of hits that way. Because at least when I'm stuck at a crosswalk, I'll read anything that's around me. I'm so bored. Um, I also just as soon as you mentioned your topic, I immediately just just reflexively thought about the video game Frogger. Um, well, where, where it, it, for people who don't know what that is, you basically play like a little, a little frog who has to cross the street without getting smushed by one of the series of cars going in either direction. And I just think, I, I wonder if you could do, like, we, we learned how to program Scratch. I'm not sure how, well, how possible this is. But. Actually, well, can I, I jump in, too? I actually talked to three people had posted driving-related games um, for Scratch in our gallery, including the, the Danger Cat one is the premise of Hopper, except with Danger Cat crossing and there are cars and trucks. So, David, I don't know if... There we go, had created it, and they had all agreed that I could, like, if I, I, it sounds like a website, an interactive website is the way to go, and they had agreed to let me use some sort of uh, either the games or modification of the games on there, because I, I think that's definitely true. Dean? Okay. Um, just playing off of Christina's sticker idea, I think that's great. Like, you could have a hate cars 
sticker for the pedestrians and a hate pedestrians sticker for the cars and then the <laughs> website to try and get both sides onto the website, which yes. might be kind of cool. I propose a bumper sticker that says, I accelerate pedestrians. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, when you brought up this topic and you brought up the video, I immediately thought of uh, one that I saw in undergrad that's pretty hilarious. So I linked it to the... Uh, the question submission thing, the third one, um, it has two votes. <laughs> so you can link that to your website. It's pretty funny. I don't, I, I'm pretty sure it's fake, um, which makes me feel a little better about myself. That's it. It's, uh, it's the one with three oh, it votes. Up to the top. There. <laughs> I'm not sick. <laughs> And thank you for fessing up that it was you. Yeah, it's only like 15 seconds long. You might not want to watch art. (laughs) (laughs) That was a dummy. That was a dummy. No, it's fake. It's got like an award sign, like in the corner. Like if you tell us from like a commercial or something. But that's the general idea. I mean, bottom line, <laughs> self-preservation. But even then, I mean, you could get some comment on that because he wasn't in a crosswalk. <laughs> I wanted to say two things, one of, one of which is, is a response to what you just said. Because whenever I see those signs that say, you know, drivers must yield or stop for pedestrians and crosswalks, my first thought is, like, like they don't if you're just crossing the street. Like, like they can hit you, right? Um, and, I, and I often wonder about trying to make that as a defense um, for hitting pedestrians who aren't in crosswalks. But the other thing was that this seems like sort of – this is the ultimate sort of empathic argument. In fact, I don't even know which side I'm on on this argument because, you know, like every, 90% of us probably are both drivers and pedestrians. And, um, and so, in fact, I'm not even entirely sure which side you're on, um, whether you're trying to get people to stop more at crosswalks or you're getting people to, to, cro- to cross only in crosswalks rather than across the middle of the street. Um, and I don't know if that's a strength or if that's a, you know, or if, we're just, if you just want to raise the issue that people should pay more attention to these rules, then probably that's, it's fine to not have either side. But I wasn't sure. You know, I don't know, like I say, which side I even fall, fall on, which is the bigger problem. Yeah, I think that there's a big audience for this sort of um, gripes about this kind of thing on all sides. Actually, if you read the um, the Phoenix, I think. Is it the Phoenix? No. I, I don't know what it is. The Dig. If you read The Dig, they have this Oh Cruel World column where it's just somebody rants about something. And a large majority of them are people who got pissed off at somebody driving or walking around. Because you just can't communicate with that person that you're annoyed at. And those things are very entertaining. They get you, you know, so excited about, uh, yeah, how you feel about it. Also, um, I'm a biker, and don't forget the bikers. <laughs> I mean, this is, there's just a whole lot of tension between the bikes and the cars and the bikes and the people as well as the cars and the people. I don't want to take yours. There's two mics around here somewhere. Hey, I... I wonder if you've seen, for a sort of a different angle on this whole issue, a bunch of towns in Europe have abolished road signs, 
and they've paved over the roads and sidewalks with sort of uniform cobblestones to eliminate the sort of barrier separating cars and people. And the, the theory behind this is that people feel constrained by road signs and traffic laws, and so by eliminating them, people will treat each other with common brotherhood and not run each other over. Wait, are you saying they made like the ri- roads wider? You know, like so there are no sidewalks. Yeah, I mean, like they encompass the sidewalk, so people and cars just sort of like coexist in harmony. And uh, <laughs> I- I'm wondering, sort of, if you have any insight as to this uh, utopian vision. This is a bunch of countries, like seven towns. I don't know what towns they are, but if you if you Google for like crackpot utopian traffic. Europe. You'll probably get it. The other thing you might be able to do is there's a lot of suburbs around here that have very strict crosswalk laws where if you're if a pedestrian's even on a side of the street, then it's illegal to go through the crosswalk. And you can actually especially if you ask the police, they actually have videos of people going through and then police cars, you know, sirens on flying after them, and that might be an interesting video to have as like the extreme version of it. So uh, in terms of the utopian vision, that's the way it is in lots of parts of China, not because of any utopian vision, but just because the road signs, like the lines have been like scraped off because there's so many cars. And I can tell you that it's not successful and it is not full of peace and harmony. Once a bus ran by me and it was like six inches away from my toe. So don't do it. Well, all right. Allison, tell us your email address. Oh, uh, that's A Healy, A H E A L E Y at law. Dot Harvard dot edu. Dot Harvard dot edu. Okay. And I'd like to ask you to do um, an online feedback memo to Allison and Likewise, follow up with an online feedback memo to Becca and to me. <coughs> Becca is... What do you want? Your email address. They all have it. I think so. R. at cyber.law.harvard.edu and Nesson at law.harvard.edu. And uh, we haven't got time for another project. I don't want to hold you over either. So I think I'd just like to conclude at this point. And uh, something, Dean? Yeah. Are there people who would be interested in some kind of like short video workshop, like just a real quick how to put something on like YouTube or Blip and how to get it on your computer or something like that? People? Okay. Um, Maybe I'll put something up in the wiki on the front page just to kind of trying to figure out when and where and what time and all that stuff. Um, I thought you were going to do it right now. I don't have the right equipment to do it right now. Oh. Um, Can I suggest that this wiki 
scheduling is a complicated thing. And they, that, um, what I've found that at least works moderately well is to pick two times that I can do and offer them to everybody and then make everybody fit my schedule. Maybe you should try that. That's kind of what I was thinking, just putting up a couple potential times and, who, you know, whatever works for the most people will do. Um, and it, it'll be more than 10 minutes, so. Okay. All right, cool. That's good. Any concluding thoughts? I saw a hand go up. Yeah. All right, well, um, I'd like to continue with projects next week. Uh, we're off to a wonderful start. Thank you for participating. And um, I'd love to call for some volunteers just so we have some thought. There's one. There's two. There's three. Come on, we need four. Just uh, there's four. Okay, that's great. And we'll. All right, we've got five. And all right, we're in great. We're we're rolling. We're rolling. All right. So um, please, if you would, do your feedback, and um, you're out of here. Thank you. I love your projects. This yeah. is really fun. <laughs>